the Putin regime has been widely exploiting the vulnerabilities of global social media platforms, using bots and trolls to promote specific stories and narratives. But Russian propaganda does not work how most people think it does. The interventions of the trolls and agitators often fail to directly promote pro-regime narratives in political discussions, but do succeed in distracting people from having open discussions that are critical of the state. Welcome to the counter-intuitive world of Russian disinformation operations. The Silicon Curtain podcast has been created to explore issues around propaganda narratives and techniques and the threat they pose to open societies. If you enjoy the material we create, then please like and subscribe to help boost the popularity of our videos in YouTube. Uh, Maxim Alyukov is a postdoctoral fellow at the King's Russia Institute. He is also a researcher within the Public Sociology Laboratory uh, based in St. Petersburg. Maxim holds a PhD in social sciences from the University of Helsinki and an MA in sociology from the European University of St. Petersburg. Maxim's research has been published in a variety of disciplinary and area studies journals, including politics, nature, human behavior, qualitative psychology, and Europe-Asia studies. He has also made guest appearances on several British and European TV and radio shows, such as BBC World Service, BBC Radio 4, Deutsche Welle, and others. Maxime is a regular contributor to Open Democracy. Welcome to the channel. Hello. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, glad to be here. It's a great, it's a great privilege. And um, uh, the reason, you know, we got in contact was a, an absolutely fascinating article uh, that I saw you had written in Nature. Um, now, this is a very difficult and complex area of research, isn't it? What got you interested in the first place? Uh, well, it was quite uh, some time ago. So I think I started focusing on propaganda, media, uh, political communication in 2014. So, uh, you know, like uh, it's there's one, uh, one of the arguments uh, frequently used by Russian propaganda, uh, it's where have you been in the past eight years? So it's typically what they ask uh, when people oppose the war. So they ask, okay, in the past uh, eight years, Ukraine has been bombing Donbass. So why you just, why you oppose the war now and not uh, before? So I can answer, I usually, I can easily and openly say that in the past eight years I've been studying Russian propaganda. So basically, uh, yeah. And before that, I was just interested in social movements. I think when the conflict started back in 2014, when Russia next Crimea, uh, and when the conflict in eastern Ukraine uh, started, uh, there were many uh, sort of narratives about propaganda, which were very simplistic. Uh, and I think uh, this political upheaval on the one hand, and uh, a clear lack of explanation and how it works and what's happening were sort of triggers for me. That's why I started uh, my, my research. So 2014 is a critical year for you, and to an extent, it's seeing the war and the propaganda surrounding that war, which prompted you to come into the field. Yes, uh, exactly, yeah. I mean, that's fascinating. I spoke yesterday to um, a very interesting lady uh, uh, called um, uh, Olga, who, again, around the same kind of time, but she was, uh, uh, Olga Rydova, she was, she was, uh, uh, compelled by the events of 2012 and the Bolotna protests to, uh, you know, become more politically active. Active. So that's a crucial kind of period, isn't it? That's a step change in Putin's regime, going from a yeah. hybrid regime to a more authoritarian regime. Yeah, actually, I uh, after 2011, 2012, I started studying social movements, and then in 2014, I sort of switched to communication. And these are two key. Uh, uh, events which sort of uh, which are very important for understanding how Putin's authoritarian regime works. Now, before we dive into the details of your research, and we could probably talk for hours on that, but we've only got an hour to to discuss it and unpick it. But before we dive into that, could we quickly focus on current events? Because of course, a lot has been happening over the last few days, 
And one prominent format on Russian TV is uh, agitainment, or uh, agitainment, uh, as I think you call it in your paper, where a mix of propagandists um, sit down with so-called military and social experts. They stand around in a circle, a little bit like the weakest link, if anyone's seen uh, that sort of quiz show from a long time ago, and they kind of yell at each other. Um, within that format, there's always a dissenting voice. Um, so it creates a kind of artificial polyphony of views. But within the last few days, and since the rout of the Russian army um, and that, that huge looming defeat, the sort of the dissenting voice on these shows has been getting a little bit more attention than normal, haven't they? Could you maybe break down sort of what's, what's happening uh, in these uh, propaganda formats? Yeah, that's uh, agitainment. It's uh, basically propaganda mixed with uh, scandalous entertaining formats, such as yelling at each other. Uh, it's not my term, it's uh, by Vera Toltz and Yuri Zepper. And uh, they started uh, using this sort of format uh, intensively uh, after uh, this protest wave in 2012, and there were sort of uh, different campaigns. Uh, and uh, I have an impression that uh, many people draw uh, very serious conclusions when they hear these descending voices, uh, but it's actually a, a normal feature of Russian propaganda. So they employ this technique uh, very often. And I just have a feeling that sometimes when uh, some uh, challenges happen, such as uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, they add a bit more of these dissenting voices, because otherwise, if you just uh, rely on very blunt propaganda, it's just not very believable. And uh, it's not really serious. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, we observe such changes uh, in the past months. So for instance, after uh, the invasion started in March, when it became clear that it's not going according to plan, you could hear more dissenting voices questioning the idea uh, discussing the idea, maybe we should uh, retrieve our troops and things like that. Uh, it's just propaganda adjusts to reality because otherwise the distance between the reality and uh, narratives is just too uh, too big, and people wouldn't believe it. And to an extent, you know, the opposing voices uh, at the moment are around the war as to you know whether to withdraw or whether to double down and go for full mobilization. So this format creates the illusion of a debate, doesn't it? The illusion of a democratic, pluralistic kind of environment. And yet it has no influence on any political decision-making. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, this format is uh, uh, Kremlin's attempt to solve uh, a problem they have. So the problem is that the media machine in Russia is commercial media machine. So it's, it needs entertainment. It needs to generate revenue. It needs to attract the audience. And on the other hand, uh, there is a Kremlin control and they need to spread propaganda somehow. And people don't like propaganda. They are not, not you know, uh, news junkies. And uh, they have to both keep uh, profits high and uh, spread propaganda. And uh, this show is just one of the attempts to make something very scandalous and attractive on the one hand and spread propaganda on the other. So yeah. it's just one of the solutions to this problem. So some of the really extreme points of view that we see uh, and which a lot of commentators take them really seriously, you know, you see on Twitter people sharing you know, some of these debates on, on propagandist channels, and we're shocked and horrified. But to an extent, do you think Russian audiences, they know this is propaganda, they know it's a form of entertainment, perhaps they don't take some of the more extreme uh, opinions seriously? Uh, some of them don't, some of them do. Um... Yeah, I'd say that judging by, well, right now you cannot get into heads of this uh, propagandist like Solodyov and talk to them, but before that we had some research uh, based on interviews with these people showing that they, sometimes they're not exactly serious, right? So they also approach their own role with some creativity uh, and for them it's just, um, yeah, it's sort of a, a theatrical performance. Um, they, they mean, they, of course, they understand that they are very influential, but for them, it's also sort of a game. Uh, 
uh, for pe- uh, if we speak about people, yeah, I'd say that, uh, well, I'm not sure if they understand the, and uh, enjoy this theatrical part, but uh, it's definitely uh, many people do not really trust the shows. Uh, uh, there is probably a, a group of people, a very significant group of people who talk, uh, take these people seriously, like Solovyov. Uh, but uh, there is also widespread distrust, and even among regime supporters who mm-hmm. uh, consume propaganda, uh, these people are regarded with suspicion and sometimes mm-hmm. with disgust. So, similarly to Dugin, where he seems to be more popular and even better known in the West than perhaps he was to um, you know an internal Russian audience, until of course uh, his his daughter was murdered in that very high profile event um, you know, two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. So I think these people just create this esoteric image of Russia, and that's why people outside of Russia, such as journalists or all kinds of Twitter commentators, they pick up these images. And mm-hmm. it's not really does not really correspond to, uh, yeah, what people like and see, uh, what people like and enjoy in Russia. Well, if we turn to what people like and think. Um... You know, polls that have been published consistently show that 60 to 70 percent of Russian people support the so-called military operation. But how reliable can any opinion polls be in an autocratic regime where any kind of dissent uh, can land you 15 years in a penal colony? Yeah, well, it depends on what we mean by reliability and what we actually want to extract from these polls. Because uh, definitely there is this issue of fear or what social scientists call preference falsification. Uh, but there are uh, there is a bunch of uh, other different sort of biases and distortions related to authoritarian context. So, uh, and fear is not the most serious one. So there are other issues such as self-selection bias, for instance. Uh, we have a sample uh, which, uh, and we should ask a question. So who were these people who agreed to participate in the survey in the first place? Right, so we know that uh, there is a chance, there is a threat, uh, uh, and of, uh, basically pro-regime people are more likely to agree to participate. And there are all kinds of biases like this. So sometimes people have no opinion, uh, they don't have a formulated sort of uh, understanding of what's going on, they just borrow some ideas from television uh, just because they're being asked. Uh, and uh, yeah, my sort of heuristic, my approach to this issue, I always say in response to this question is that uh, absolute numbers are not very useful. So when they say that uh, it's 76% supporting Putin and uh, a special military operation, that's not useful because of all these biases. But if, for instance, you look at relative uh, at relationship between variables, between age and support, between television viewing and support, that's 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 very useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah. ways to improve your data would be to obviously take a larger sample size but also then divide it by demographics, by age, gender, uh, maybe look at who, you know, where their sources of information from. Is it also realistic to, you know, get data from the big cities, but also provinces? Because there's going to be a big difference, isn't there, potentially between, you know, what a, uh, you know, middle class uh, Muscovite will think compared to somebody, uh, you know, in a village or a provincial town. Yeah, definitely. It's important to uh, talk to people in smaller cities and villages because that's where most Russians live, right? Uh, and uh, yeah. And uh, you you do rely, don't you, on your research and your insights uh, on doing sociological data? Um, is is there anything about the methodology that would be interesting to uh, to discuss, or is the methodology quite sort of? Do you have to keep it quite sort of secret? Uh, in my research? In your research, yeah. Uh, well, nothing really secret. I rely on uh, focus groups, surveys, uh, content analysis, like one of the recent studies I've been doing is based on systematically extracting content from Russian propaganda mm-hmm. channels, from state media and from social media. Yeah. So that's like typical social science, political science toolkit, interviews, focus groups, surveys, and uh, content analysis. So all, all sort of open open sources. So there's a transparency around the methodology. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Sure. Uh, no, I mean, I uh, I don't know if you count, uh, say, focus groups as open source mm. data. It's 
it's transparent in the sense that I when I publish an article, I explain the all procedures, but uh, it's this data is quite sensitive. I would not, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, if some police or authorities uh, get uh, mm. my transcripts, that can be problematic, right? So that's why it's uh, not that open. Now that that's that's a good point. Now. Reading um, your fantastic article in Nature, you've described Putin's regime as an informational autocracy that runs a hybrid media system. Uh, could you explain what that means? And, and in reality, what does that translate into? Yeah, these are two different ideas, uh, not actually mine. So one, the idea of informational autocracy is introduced by Gurdjieff and Trisman, who basically make this claim saying that uh, this is a new type of autocracy in the 20th century, which are very different from violent dictatorships of the past, uh, because they mainly rely on manipulation of information, on uh, creating this image of a successful leader. And Putin's regime has been uh, an informational autocracy for the past 20 years, right? So they obsessed with rating, with control over information, and it was, and it has been relatively, uh, sort of peaceful autocracy, not relying on violent methods uh, too much. Uh, yeah, but they, in the past uh, couple of years, they've been transitioning toward more sort of violent autocracy more and more. So that's the idea of informational autocracy. You do not rely on force, you rely on force, but you rely on manipulation over information uh, more than force. Uh, yeah, and hybrid media system, it basically means that uh, you've got a sophisticated, saturated media system where uh, different media interact. So narratives travel across uh, online news and media outlets, platforms, uh, news aggregators. So news aggregators make some uh, online news more visible, uh, downplay others. Um, yeah, uh, basically, it does not make any sense to talk about online, offline, for instance, because it's all a part of uh, shared common media ecology today. And that's what you observe in Russia, right? So that's, uh, um, you've got news aggregators, which uh, are a part of state-controlled media ecology, making certain sources more visible. You've got trolls and bots, which are also used to uh, influence and manipulate uh, social media platforms and so on. And I think that's something, um, uh, you know, I was going to ask that question later, but it seems really good to ask it now. So Yandex is the equivalent of Google, isn't it? And um, I think and everyone would understand that uh, the government in the US and Europe doesn't really have any control over the content that Google serves, but it will legislate around, you know, protection of data and certain things like that. But Yandex in Russia, the government is actually able to influence the result sets that are being served aren't they so how how do they gain control of that and, and how does that work uh well yandex there are two different sort of parts of yandex yandex news which is a uh, uh, a news and yandex which is a, a search engine uh, we know a lot about news yandex as a news aggregator now because um, uh, it's actually it's you know algorithms they Companies do not disclose their algorithms. This is basically a black box. So we uh, it's difficult to, un to understand what, what's inside. Mm -hmm. So Yandex has been accused of uh, censorship and manipulation for quite some time, but they always try to say that it's just algorithms. We uh, do not manipulate any information. We're just a business company. Uh, it works. Uh, it's very similar to Google, say. Uh, we, we use ranking signals and we do not mess with our algorithms. Uh, and at the same time, uh, scholars have been showing that there is a there are systematic distortions and patterns in news presented by Yandex News, and uh, it was clear that they somehow sort of manipulate uh, information, but it was not clear how. And then in the past year, it became clear there were sort of a couple of leaks, couple of people who left Yandex who disclosed that there is a list. Uh, this news aggregator is very very simple, so there is a list of twelve. Uh, 13, 14 sources, which are sort of approved by uh, Putin's administration, uh, which can be included uh, in so-called top five uh, of Yandex, uh, Yandex News. So they do not um, censor uh, specific uh, news stories, right? But there is an approved list of sources they can use. And mm -hmm. uh, the, all the sources are state-aligned, state-controlled uh, newspapers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this uh, search engine is not really 
uh, it's less clear because we don't know uh, the exact algorithm behind it, right? But we can compare outputs. So for instance, if you can uh, search for something on, on Google and on Yandex and compare, systematically compare output, you see that Yandex is biased towards uh, oppositional sources, right? So uh, it downplays uh, newspapers and news critical of the government. And, and it includes a little bit more of state uh, state control sources, but we don't know the exact sort of uh, mechanism behind that. So it's not as extreme as in China, where certain search topics will be blocked entirely. So you can theoretically search on anything and get results on anything, but there may well be some bias in the sort of editorial ranking or choice of top articles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. There'll be some bias in terms of ranking. So some topics, some information is just more difficult to find. But uh, still, if you are uh, sort of um, active enough and committed, you can find it. Yeah. Um, and if you are searching on sensitive topics, do is the awareness of needing to use a VPN quite high now? because there was a government campaign near the start of the war to try and stigmatize users of VPNs. But I understand from your research that that didn't really work and that VPN use has, has increased greatly uh, since February. Yeah, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think in the couple of months ago, there was a survey showing that about like 25% of Russians report uh, using VPN. Uh, so it's obviously yeah increased dramatically since the beginning of the war, uh, because yeah. it became the, it was the only way to access blocked uh, social media and many other sources. And what has been the main change? So if we look at the the sort of hybrid media environment previously, you know um, a lot of uh, obviously state TV is controlled very tightly, but you did have um, I wouldn't call them opposition, but you did have alternative voices online. Uh, and on radio. So for instance, Echo Moskvi, Dojd, you could go and you could consume a, a, a very liberal media diet until, of course, you know, the war began or sometime before the war, because of course, the repression actually began towards the end of last year, which was perhaps a premonition that something something big is, is coming. Um, but that's really changed since February, hasn't it? So what's happened to the media landscape how many websites have been blocked, shut down, or forced to uh, operate from outside of Russia? Uh, well, uh, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, the data revealed by Roskomnadzor, which is Russian communications watchdog in July, according to this data, they blocked about uh, 5,000 websites and more than 100,000, they call it resources, uh, it's probably web pages, right? So it's not uh, separate websites. So it's about 5,000 websites in total. Uh, of course, only a few of them are sort of popular uh, news outlets, mm -hmm. uh, but in total it's quite a, yeah, quite a number. Mm -hmm. And there are a few methods, aren't there, to, um, to block or control sites. You can, you can literally shut them down, but they chose quite an interesting method of, of coercion, which was to designate um, companies and then individuals as foreign agents. So through that law, you didn't necessarily even force a particular station to shut down, but by being designated a foreign agent, it became much harder to um, gain advertisers, uh, to monetize your content. And of course, it put you at the risk of being financially audited, which could, you know, it puts an additional financial burden on anyone operating in that sphere. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, mm, quite, uh, yeah, it's not just shutting down organizations. So there are a few rules for, for people who are included, who are on the list of foreign agents. Uh, one rule is that uh, whenever you uh, write an article or give an interview or just mm, tweet or make a post on Facebook, you have to add this, like, a passage explaining that you are a foreign agent, which basically makes it impossible for people to tweet because it's much longer than 144 uh, symbols. Uh, 
but yeah, so I think the, the basically the idea of this law, it was introduced back in early 2010s, right after this wave of repression uh, of protest and then repressions. And back then the sort of political climate in Russia was much, much softer. So it was just the beginning of this wave of repressions. And uh, since then, they've been sort of developing this law, expanding the number uh, of types of uh, sort of entities which can be included, labeled as foreign agents, right? At the beginning, these were organizations, then uh, media organiza organizations were included, individuals. So a sort of a legacy of these uh, early stages of, uh, of uh, authoritarian turn, I think. Um, yeah, back then they could not sort of just put people in prison for nothing mm -hmm. because back then there were protests in Russia, quite a large scale protest. It was not uh, possible. Mm -hmm. And now it just became a regular uh, practice for uh, authorities, for law enforcement. So it's just convenient. Every uh, end of the week, Friday night, they uh, announce new people who are on the list of foreign agents. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. And, and and every couple of months they have a list of uh, Western journalists who they, uh, you know, yeah. bar from from entering Russia as well. So it works in both internal and external, doesn't it? Although obviously it has a lot less effect or no effect at all on on foreign journalists typically. Next, I'd like to turn to how propaganda narratives are kind of crafted and tested, because one of the really fascinating things I saw in your research you know, we hear about the narratives at the start of the war talking about demilitarization, denazification, and other narratives, quite extreme narratives, have been used throughout the war. But your research, um, or your summaries of the research, suggest that actually some of these narratives didn't really stick with the public. So they've been quietly dropped in favor of other narratives. So how does that process work of creating and testing, you know, different angles? Uh, well, nobody knows for sure, because for this you would need to interview people like Margarita Simonian and, uh, and Solovyov, who are not really interested in giving interviews. Uh, uh, but we know that there are a couple of sort of layers of control. Uh, the first one is just, uh, it was established after the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine conflict back in 2014. So they started to hold regular meetings with uh, major uh, sort of representatives of media organizations such as TV channels and, and the Kremlin. And they basically coordinate uh, the agenda, uh, basically the Kremlin telling them what to do. Uh, then the, we've got uh, meaning that these are uh, instructions, secret instructions for journalists. And then, uh, but the system cannot, cannot, can't work without journalist creativity. So uh, the narratives and stories and the materials are prepared by journalists themselves who rely on their own sort of understanding of, what's, of what they have to do. And uh, uh, yeah, basically the Kremlin, Temniki uh, focus on uh, very broad areas. Uh, they do not give you specific instructions on what to say. They say, okay, if you focus on sanctions, then you should emphasize that sanctions hurt the West, not Russia. And then journalists themselves have to sort of uh, come up with an idea mm -hmm. how to frame the story fitting this more general guideline. So uh, yeah, uh, in terms of testing narratives, um, uh, uh, yeah, this is how it works, right? Mm -hmm. So it's your your job to come up with a, with a narrative which works. And somehow a uh, couple of narratives which are super prominent at the beginning of the conflict with this uh, NATO expansion and uh, the protection of, of, of Donbass population. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess they somehow invented them uh, working to the other Kremlin political technologies and, and journalists, because mm -hmm. it was clear that these were sort of um, sensitive topics and they, they gradually, they were gradually developing narratives. Mm -hmm. I guess it's a little like marketing. I mean, marketing is the field I'm in, and that's kind of why I got fascinated in this area, because it bears quite a bit of resemblance to what we do. You know, we'll craft adverts and we'll create multiple variations of those adverts. We'll throw them out into the field and then we'll test what happens, you know, the different response rates. I'm imagining that even though we can't know for sure that actually the Kremlin propagandists are not just, you know, 
they're not just 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 creating stuff for the sake of it. Uh, uh, they actually will have a lot of data and data sources that they analyze, you know, from user behavior habits, viewing habits. They'll do their own sort of gathering of data to understand what's working and what isn't. Uh, yeah, well, the uh, Putin's regime is definitely obsessed with uh, social science research, with mm. polls and surveys and, and focus groups. And we know that they have been conducting their own research since the beginning of 2000s. And Putin himself is personally obsessed with ratings. He, yeah. for some reason, uh, likes to be seen as a popular leader. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so for instance, this, this uh, ideas you mentioned, this narratives, denazification uh, and demilitarization. So these were two goals mentioned by Putin during uh, beginning uh, during his speech explaining the goals of the invasion. They did not work. Yeah. And uh, before uh, confirming that. They actually happened and they abandoned this narrative. That's what we sort of did by collecting the data. Uh, we uh, saw several leaks uh, from the Kremlin uh, basically saying that they abandoned these terms, right? So uh, yeah. it's not sort of a, um, a new idea for us because we already heard about the failure to make this, uh, this, this narrative popular. A similar um, one was war, wasn't it? I've seen in your research that you've said that the war or calling it a special military operation, of course, there'll be some people who still buy into that idea. But now we're six months in. It's quite clear that it's not a three day surgical military operation. I think everybody understands it as full scale war. So again, I think your research suggests that they understood the population are calling it a war and thinking about it as a war. So actually, they turned their propaganda uh, narrative to, well, if we have to use the word war, let's apply it to something else, economic war, gas war, um, you know, information war. So we're using the word that everyone's using, but we twist the meaning, we put it into a different context to try and reframe the debate. Is that a common technique? Uh, with these specific terms, I think it was sort of an unintended consequence or something. Mm -hmm. I don't really think that they, uh, you know, they've been building a theory of audience reception <laughs> and then uh, deciding how to frame the term war. So I think that, yeah, basically the idea was that it's limited special operation. It's not a war with civilians dying. Uh, so we stick to the, our own terminology and we imprison people for using the word war. And at the same time, we want to say that we are winning this war, and uh, we are not not uh, the en not the aggressor. We are the enemy mm. of the West. That's why we're talking about the war uh, of the West against that. But uh, the reality is that yeah, you you definitely see that uh, in the end they sort of appropriating some of the language used by the opposition. I'm not sure to what extent this is a, a planned operation. So mm. it sounds like an, a sort of unintended consequence. So rather than being master strategists, some aspects of the uh, propaganda narrative are kind of being made up actually in reaction to events. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I think it's uh, very much um, uh, they adapt to changing circumstances, right? So there are people who have individual agency. They are told, they're given some general instructions, but then they have to decide how to, how to act and how to cover, uh, cover particular topics themselves. So turning to that, you've talked about there being a number of tools used by propagandists to get their messages across. And I think we've been talking quite a bit, whether it's search engines or TV, that there's a kind of framing bias. And I think that's that's a more of an editorial uh, technique, but also they do fabricate evidence. And they do fabricate tons of evidence, don't they? So could you describe a little bit, you know, um, how that works and some good examples of that? And, and, and sometimes the evidence that's fabricated to our eyes will look a bit absurd, but but some of it works, doesn't it? Some of it's quite compelling. Well, that's how it works with information. Uh, one of the earlier uh, obscene stories fabricated by Kremlin was this crucified boy in Eastern Ukraine, which who was allegedly crucified by uh, Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, which is, of course, false. And uh, back then, in 2014 and 15, 16, it appeared that they actually used actors, paid actors, to uh, create the stories. 
And yeah, the thing with the stories is that once you sort of create the story and people pay attention to the story, then you can discredit. Uh, I mean, some journalists can come and say, well, this is a, here's my evidence showing this is a false story. But this uh, evidence showing that the story was false does not reach the people who were affected by, by, by this fake story. So the fake sort of narrative travels and uh, you cannot really um, discredit it fully just because the information travels too fast for and there's not enough you know fact checking so mm. sometimes they do invent stories and sometimes the stories are really crazy <laughs> but again so for me as a social science i think uh, when you have this you have this industry of uh, russia watchers and experts on twitter focusing focusing on the most obscene examples of russian propaganda mm. produced by skabeva Solovyov, yeah. and this is just very uh, sort of cherry picking approach they uh, focus on the most obscene examples uh, at the same time you have uh, dozens of Russian channels running 24 uh, 7 all kinds of news all kinds of stories and uh, yeah uh, it's important to see this uh, bigger picture uh, so what is the average sort of frequency of using certain words uh, and uh, on average they don't you know, fabricate a lot of evidence. There are some sort of stories like this, but overall their strategy is just uh, framing rather than fabricating. So mm -hmm. instead of creating some crazy stories, we just uh, mention facts which are convenient for us and we completely ignore facts which are not convenient for us, which challenge our narrative. That's the mm -hmm. main strategy. And well, also that's using... uh, RT. I mean, I'm going to be speaking to an expert on Friday about... Uh... Rush Today, which had a, a similar system to that, which is mostly truth, but with a little sprinkling of bias here and there, but of course designed to you know, undermine cohesion and create a, a debate in the West that, that hopefully undermine, um, you know, uh, latching onto local causes, but nonetheless, uh, you know, it has a very clear objective, which is to weaken uh, your enemies. Yeah, that's our art style, right? So you uh, select certain facts which uh, are set, like energy crisis, right, happening in, in Europe or COVID or vaccination, and you completely ignore all other facts which are, which cannot challenge the legitimacy of uh, Western democracies. But yeah, I think if you focus on uh, mainstream news and TV channels, uh, the main sort of strategy is framing things in this way rather than inventing crazy stories at the same time you've got this uh stars like Solovyov and uh, all kinds of talk shows and yeah they do um invent crazy stories sometimes i think you've called it this i mean this is a concept which in the criticism of propaganda doesn't really get mentioned but i think you called it a multi-dimensional process where uh, you know, you might have these extreme or absurd channels, but actually you're swimming in a, in, a, in a vast sea of sources which give you the impression that actually it's a pluralistic environment. But in fact, the entire thing, to an extent, is controlled. And if any part of that media environment steps too far outside of the approved narrative, it's going to get sort of shut down. But it does create, I guess, for people in Russia, the impression that they're living in a more sort of you know, complex and perhaps freer society than, than it actually is. Yeah, that's that's how it works. And that's why I use the term hybrid, uh, because at certain point I just discovered conducting focus groups in Russia that uh, uh, people actually, well, we tend to focus on television, but they actually use watch television and then they also use all kinds of online sources. And there's no sort of clear uh, boundary between online and offline media use. And they actually work together. So they encounter the same narrative on television and then on news aggregators and search engines and platforms. And when you see a sort of 10 different sources reporting this, the same story, you conclude that the story is, 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 is true, mm. right? So because it's just uh, common sense, it's logic, uh, mm -hmm. 10 different stories 10 different sources reporting the same story you cannot force you can force one of them to report uh, a story which is not true but it's much more difficult to control 10 sources mm. and make them report the same story so and when people encounter the same information over and over again from different sources it seems to be more credible mm. than just propaganda from television
Well, right at the end of the interview, we're going to talk about how you provide an antidote to that. Um, but for now, let's keep with, with these propaganda methodologies, because I, I think there's a really interesting one as well uh, to suppress protests, whether it be anti-war protests or the protests in Bielorussia. I think there's another really subtle but interesting technique, isn't it? And you don't directly convince people they're wrong. You don't directly convince them there isn't a war and that there aren't problems. You actually convince them that maybe you are right, but actually you're isolated. And if you do protest, terrible things are gonna happen. No one's gonna support you. You are perhaps different. Um, I think you've used some harsher words than that, but, the, but, but the, the, this process is to really try to isolate people who are likely to oppose the regime. And I think that was one of the techniques that was exported to Belarusia, wasn't it? When that country was on the verge of, of a popular revolution. Uh, to sort of isolate people and uh, make them feel that they're powerless. Mm -hmm. That's what you mean? Yeah, powerless, rather than you know persuade them that their activism is not gonna come to anything. Uh, create confusion, division, apathy, indifference. And I yeah. believe that was one of the techniques, you know, when all the Belarusian propagandists basically resigned and uh, they were replaced by ones from Moscow, I think they reframed the narrative completely to, to create sort of, you know, fear, isolation and indifference. Um, uh -huh. They didn't say, look, Lukashenko is a great guy. You know, in fact, they said, well, Lukashenko, he's a terrible guy and, and everything you think is true, but mm -hmm. your protests are not going to work. You know, you're not going to yeah. succeed. Yeah, that, that's a very important uh, process because, um, uh, again, this is uh, propaganda in the digital age, 21st century, right? So you cannot rely on the same old techniques and just censorship because people will have access to information uh still to plenty of alternative uh, narratives uh just because uh, domestic media are just too numerous to control or just because they use vpn and that they uh, just avoid your censorship so you have to rely on some other techniques uh in addition to persuasion and uh russian propaganda propagandists have been relying on this i don't know whether they act sort of uh whereas whether it's a deliberate plan but the uh, effect, whether intended or not, is often, is often confusion and distrust. So instead of giving you uh, a clear and coherent picture of what of their interpretation was what's ha what's happening, they throw all bombard you with different versions of the same event. Mm -hmm. uh, so MH17 was shot down by uh, a Ukrainian aircraft, or mm -hmm. it was the fake from the very beginning. Budgets were planted, the CIA plan. Or some, so we also know that some source, some other sources mentioned the third version, and people mm -hmm. just get lost, right? So you just don't understand uh, which one is correct. Uh, and the same is Bucha, right? So this were, it was a provocation, it was staged, uh, it was an initial fake plan by CIA or something, it never happened. So uh, very often their strategy is just to throw. Mm -hmm. uh, as much information as possible on you in order to confuse you and that's what people uh, pe people just uh, get lost and when they don't know what to trust it basically decreases media trust and it also created creates this image of uh, any information is just information warfare it's manipulated and uh, that's why it doesn't make any sense to sort of protest or try to figure out what's going on. So mm -hmm. uh, in all my research and focus groups, interviews, I keep hearing this narratives that, OK, I understand they are lying, uh, but other sources are lying as well. And when you don't have a, a sort of a positive image of media freedom, a positive image of democracy, it does not make any sense to protest against Russian uh, authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. uh, and that technique, as I, I was going to say, that technique is is definitely used in the external uh, propaganda. Um, they don't throw out one point of view, they throw out numerous contradicting point of views and just see which one's going to work. And, you know, the one about uh, it all being the fault of NATO, etc., that Russia is... Uh, you know, surrounded on all sides, creating the fortress mentality, you know, all of these worked for a time. And then in the mainstream ceased to work, 
but some of them still do work uh, amongst a small minority. So I'm thinking the hard left and the alt-right, they're still repeating these same narratives six months on, even though the mainstream has sort of moved on from them. So some of it can be quite effective. And um, we saw the same with Skripal, the poisoning, to a lesser extent, Litvinenko, because I think the techniques were very, um, you know, early on in the development of the techniques when Litvinenko was poisoned um, with a radioactive element. But uh, yeah, each new crisis, they seem to be throwing hundreds of ideas out to see what sticks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, with uh, far right and far left, uh, I would say that uh, they're effective in the sense that um, Russian state-related media, they sort of create narratives which resonate with their beliefs and ideas, but they would find some other narratives uh, if not Russia today or if not Russian media, because the the causal chain here, to the, the causal sort of factor here is the preferences and beliefs of people on the far right or far left, and then they look for some narratives confirming their beliefs. And, uh, Culture wars, whatever it happens to be, they'll, they'll pick yeah. whatever divisive uh, topic they can latch onto. Um, and I think that that's one of the most paradoxical things in the research uh, that you've done that I read, and that is that you could have individuals in Russia who know that they're living in a, a propaganda environment. They know that many of the sources can't be trusted. Some of it's invented. Some of it is 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 sort of biased in some ways. And yet, rather than uh, it putting them off the regime or putting them off the war, um, because they've had this conditioning of kind of indifference and they're convinced of the idea that, well, this, this media is bad, but media everywhere is bad, that there is no such thing as truth, um, that actually in the end, they align with the national interests. So even though they know the war is bad and it's terrible and the regime is not good, nonetheless, they will still support it because ultimately you've got this... Um, connection to a national identity mm -hmm. how, how does that work because i find that quite quite confusing uh well um yeah uh, basically in addition to this media monitoring propaganda project we've been collecting interviews with russians with my colleagues uh and uh, asking them about their you know perceptions of the war things like that we just published a report of course it, uh, at this point it's, it's in russian but uh, i hope we will translate at a certain point and yeah so we uh, focus uh, on their media habits and perceptions uh in addition to the emotions and attitudes to the war and yeah what i found surprising is that sometimes you know we have this stereotype when information is is good give me more information I, I will learn this information i have more knowledge and that's basically good for democracy so what i see is that uh, for people we interview sometimes uh, there is just too much information and this information prevents them from uh, siding uh, from not you know it's not about siding with the government it just prevents them from formulating their own opinion because they just uh, there are too many conflicting narratives uh, and uh, you know that you cannot trust these narratives and you know that you cannot figure out the truth and at the same time you are just you are not a political expert or political scientist just normal person you have very limited time for reading the news uh, and uh, the reaction which follows from this sort of paradoxical state of political disengagement and distrust is that you uh, try to stick to something you understand and your citizenship is something you understand, right? It's the national identity is something these narratives cannot challenge. Uh, you cannot figure out the sort of details of uh, what's going on in Ukraine, but you at least you know that you are Russian. So basically you conclude that, well, I'll stick to my national interests uh, because that's something I know, that's something I understand. Uh, I cannot sort of draw uh, any definite conclusion about war in Ukraine, but uh, at least my national identity, identity is with me. And that really struck a chord with me because I've been watching, you know, I've uh, until now I've watched only, I would say, the more sophisticated analytical bloggers, uh, Ilya Valamov, um, Shindirovich, and all of those. So they're sort of, you know, the, the high intelligentsia 
they appeal to a, a certain audience, probably a very small minority uh, of educated users. But I've started in the last couple of weeks watching a few other bloggers who are much simpler, more direct, as it were. And one aspect of what they say, and this may be just protecting themselves um, from, from prosecution, but over and over I see them say things like, well, this is a complex question and I don't have enough information to have a view on this. And there are people in the government who are much smarter than me, you know, let them decide. So they'll say things that are critical, but they won't come to any conclusions and they won't, you know, it won't lead to any action. They don't suggest any action that, that comes from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very typical narrative. Uh, let them decide, right? So if it happened, if they decided to uh, start a special military operation, there were reasons. The reasons for it, yes. Uh, I don't know these reasons. I don't understand them. But if they decided to start it, then there were reasons. That's the kind of logic. Yeah. And yeah, well, uh, there are sort of two aspects to, to this uh, reasoning. One is, uh, is basically a justification. So you, it's difficult for you to admit that your country can be an aggressor. So that's why you prefer to think that there are some reasons for this aggression. And it's not just Putin's craziness. Yes. Uh, but there is also a psychological, more like informational part of this of this of this uh, of this process. Mm. I cannot really understand it because there is just too much conflicting information. And even people who um, see some of the evidence of, say, crimes, brutality, and can't themselves see any kind of justification for it, um, I think you've also written that these people especially, and this is almost certainly, you know, the better educated, uh, more sophisticated audience, they will in some ways mentally recoil from it. Um, they will shut down their critical faculties and they'll just, they don't want to believe that their country could be an immoral force. It sort of clashes with some deep identity they have. And at that point, they just switch off and perhaps stop watching media entirely. Yeah, yeah, uh, there is definitely, uh, especially now, after six months of the war, uh, a lot of alienation. Mm. And, yeah, this war was not popular uh, from the very beginning. And we know that, uh, that uh, in December 2021, only 8% Russians would agree to send Russian military to yeah. uh, Donetsk People's Republic to train them or to help them with weapons, not to mention... Let alone do a war, yes not to mention full-scale war, but then they, you know, there's this fact of the war and they're faced with the reality, which is unpleasant. And they have to come up with explanations to sort of uh, get rid of this cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. So I identify with Putin and with the regime and this regime has started the war. How do I solve this sort of, uh, how to get rid of the, of the, of the dissonance? And mm -hmm. then people start to borrow justifications like it was inevitable or it will happen anyway. That was the other one I was going to ask about, and this is one which I've, because I do have, uh, I do have friends uh, in 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 Russia, um, and I would say many of them are in that sort of intelligentsia kind of class. And this is one argument that I found very difficult uh, to both understand uh, and argue with. And they'll say, you know, the war is terrible, the regime is terrible, everything is is appalling, but it's a historical process. It's not just the random cruelty of one man it's not just you know an almost accidental thing that's happened which is on us they try to um, put some kind of abstract layer oh well this is an inevitability uh this is an east-west clash you know this is a proxy war between the u.s and ukraine even though u.s showed no sign of wanting a war last year at all um or they'll say oh well it's all orchestrated by the military industrial complex and i think the the net result, isn't it, is to absolve individuals and even, you know, the country of, of the ultimate responsibility by forcing it onto some kind of abstract layer or higher power. Exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a post-factum justification mm -hmm. uh, in order to be able to uh, absolve yourself of responsibility and cope with this with, with, uh stress and trauma and negative mm. things because yeah well before the war started there were a couple of months when there was this military build-up uh and uh people were discussing uh this opportunity this this possibility of the war and many people would not believe that it would happen just because uh 
uh, yeah. Well, Russian people are generally sort of against the war on, on mm. that because there was the Great Patriotic War. There is the Soviet norm, so any war is bad. And mm. the problem is with this regime supporters that they share this idea that war in general is a very bad thing. Mm. So how do you reconcile the idea that the war is very bad with the fact that your country is waging a specific war, a great yeah. war? So that's why you invent the justification and the television propaganda provides you. So it was inevitable. Uh, NATO would attack us anyways, so we just started first. Yes, so, yeah. absolutely. Um, another interesting aspect, I know we're, we're coming towards the end shortly, but I got another, another sort of uh, two questions to ask. One is something that I found absolutely fascinating because I think it, it um, has as much application to uh, how media narratives work in the West and how people react to them as they do in Russia. And that is that you, some of your research shows that, you know, regime supporters and opponents can interpret information in a biased way. And actually both groups often fail to detect stories because much of the criticism, you know, that I'll make and I see on Twitter is about people who are sort of pro-war or, or aren't taking a stand. But actually what you're saying is that, that kind of confirmation bias exists um, on all sides of a given debate. Yeah, that's true, definitely. I'm just a fact of human life. If you have certain political views, you use this political views as a filter and you uh, focus on certain pieces of information, you reject other pieces of information. Uh, it's just how human psychology works. Uh, you always rely on certain mental frameworks to interpret information. And this implies that you uh, select information which is already is, is consistent with your views. Uh, it's not only about political views, it's about any type of information. And definitely people who are against the regime, they have anti-regime uh, frames and biases and schemas. Uh, yeah, they would notice more information, they would notice information which sort of challenged Putin's regimes, they would reject information which is, uh, yeah, they, they just biased but in the other direction. Mm. Does this, uh, and this really is, you know, coming up to my sort of last question, because I want to, I want to end on, on, on more of a sort of potentially positive or action-oriented uh, set of questions, and that is, so these techniques of a kind of immersive uh, propaganda environment, they, they really are powerful in brainwashing. So how do, can you actually counter them, uh, especially in the West? And how can you actually reverse this brainwashing technique in a population that has to an extent sort of been immersed in it or, or even radicalized by it? Yeah, the thing is that uh, when the war started, there were all these discussions uh, about particular techniques we can use. So some of the major European newspapers started to translate their news in Russian in order for make Russian population aware of the war. Uh, some even used targeted advertising uh, to send news about the war to Russians. And then none of the strategies worked, obviously. And uh, partially the reason is that, of course, there are other reasons for pro-war attitudes, but uh, the problem is that Russians are already very, uh, they do not trust any information, so that's why it's not, doesn't make any sense to bombard them with facts, they'll just uh, simply dismiss these facts as fake news. Uh, and um, so I think uh, what we should, might consider doing is focusing on social communication more. So uh, when the war started, there were sort of conflicts and families, families falling apart, friends uh, arguing because of the polarization. Uh, but uh, I think this is an important sort of avenue uh, because people tend to, in Russia, in countries where people do not trust institutions, they tend to trust each other. And uh, if you uh, sort of manage to avoid uh, breaking your family apart with political discussions if you tend to sort of discuss issues. Because persuasion is a long-term process. You cannot change people's mind overnight. Uh, and uh, this is, I, I see it as, a, as one potential avenue because people trust each other. And if you sort of uh, prepare yourself that it's a long process and you ch don't change others' opinions overnight, it can be sort of important avenue for counter disinformation um, work. So if you give 
liberal activists in Russia some instructions on how to approach other people, it could be more effective than just sending them uh, BBC articles or something. Yes. And it won't work overnight, will it? I think you've said that to really counter the propaganda narratives, first of all, you need a substantial change in the society itself. So until there's a level of liberalization in Russia, of course, nothing really is going to happen. Um, but even once that happens, it's not that people are going to change their views overnight when presented with so-called facts. It's actually a long, long process of immersing them in other information sources. It almost takes as long to de-radicalize people as it took in the first place to radicalize them. Yeah, sometimes you cannot really change uh, beliefs of a person who has this very coherent picture of the world, right? So reality. But what you can do is just to demonstrate disagreement, uh, to uh, challenge this idea of monolithic support for the regime, just to show that there are other opinions. Because again, it's an authoritarian context. People are very sensitive to what others think. And it's important to uh, show that others do not agree. And uh, this is just step-by-step -step process. So today you said that there are people who do not support Putin. Uh, in a week, you reminded this person again that there are some alternative ideas and just repeat it again and again. So the problem is that, yeah, many people thought that it would stop the war, but the reality is that uh, anti-war movement cannot stop the war and they very rarely stop the war. So they just perform other functions. Yeah. I mean, I've heard generals say that starting wars is easy. Stopping wars is, is, is far, far more difficult. And of course, you know, for balance, it's worth saying that this is not a problem that's unique to Russia because We've had Brexit in the UK, we've had Trump in America, and both of these issues have been extremely divisive, split families apart, split generations within the same family apart who have uh, you know, radically different points of view. And four years on, very little sign, despite the wealth of information, stats, facts, and even the evidence that Brexit has not been the greatest process uh, for the economy. Nonetheless, the opinions have pretty much remained in the same percentages that they were uh, back in, in 2016. So, you know, we're, we're not immune from this same kind of uh, propagandizing process, are we? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there are similar processes. Yeah. So I think in, in Russian cases, a bit more, much more radical, but you can, definitely see identical polarization processes, identical sort of cleavages and things like that. My last question, because uh, I know I know uh, it's, it's getting late here in the UK. My last question really is about another technique which actually is meeting with some success in Ukraine. Ukraine has been under bombardment from propaganda, obviously, since 2014. Um, and they've been rolling out and developing media literacy programs, you know, cyber resilience and, uh, you know, digital media literacy and delivering it not to all age groups, but they focusing really on the younger age groups from, you know, late teens up until 30s. And that seems to actually being, you know, delivering some kind of success, but they're not going in with a particular point of view, left or right or so on. They're teaching people to think more critically about media sources. Um, what are your views on that? Is this a, a, a potentially fruitful area to, to, to grow and import into the West? Yeah, I think it depends on how you approach it, because sometimes there is a very simplistic understanding. You just uh, give people fact-checking services and explain them the basics of media literacy. It doesn't work, right? We know that it never works. Uh, but if you uh, incorporate media literacy classes, say in school, uh, you teach them early on, you give them this critical skills. Uh, in this case, I think it can be, yes, it can be successful, but it should be approached uh, as a more sort of serious, uh, large scale process. We shouldn't, you know, hope that it would change things overnight. Um, because, yeah. That, yeah, sorry. Yeah, there, there are this funny story. So when Trump came to power, uh, there was this growth and rise in fact-checking services, um, all kinds of uh, you know media outlets checking facts, and uh, at certain point, scholars decided to see whether uh, fact-checking actually actually helps pe prevents people from uh, consuming fake news. Mm -hmm. and 
<clears throat> there was a study showing a very funny, funny sort of uh, portraying a very funny situation when uh, people who consume fake news, they never use fact-checking services. People who use fact-checking services, they never uh, actually consume fake news. And the majority of people, they neither consume fake news nor use fact-checking services. So um, You're not reaching the majority of people. Um, another interesting study I saw yesterday was analysis of an attempt uh, by the U.S., to do similar propaganda or do counter propaganda, obviously based on negativity and projecting points of view. And I think from that study I saw, the evidence came back that it had no impact whatsoever. So countering propaganda with more propaganda is not a solution either. Yeah, no, it just leads to, it's like negative campaigning. It just erodes media trust and it makes people, uh, yeah more polarized, I think. And trust in, in democratic institutions and processes. Well, I think that's that's probably where we'll have to wrap it up because I know it's getting late. Um, but Maxim, it's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. I highly recommend uh, people read the research you're doing because it's it's absolutely fascinating. And there's a huge amount of information concentrated in, in the pages uh, of those resources. So I'll put a link to those uh, in the comments when we publish the interview. Um, but I'm really, really grateful that you could spend the time to speak to us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to discuss all these super important topics.